1: Thank you all for coming, friends and a few people I don't know and people I haven't seen for a long time. Uh, the launch reading was actually at Cal Poly a couple weeks ago, and uh, there was a couple hundred people there, actually. It was really an amazing evening. And now I'm going on a tour, which is actually hard to believe, uh, 24 cities, 31 readings. And this is the second one. I was in San Diego last night. If you're ever in La Jolla, there's a bookstore there called D.G. Wills, and it is maybe the coolest bookstore I've ever been to, even cooler than City Lights and places like that. Uh, Skylights, of course, is just second right after D.G. Wills, but they've been around for 80 or 90 years. So um, anyways, I'm really thrilled to be here. I'm going to read two pieces. The first one is short, short, maybe just six or seven pages. The other one's about ten pages. So uh, do those and talk a little bit about each one, and then some Q&A at the end. If you guys want to do that, that's fine too. The book is set in Pittsburgh, 1961 to 1968, and I'm seven to 14 years old. I thought of it was more of a autobiographical novel as I was writing it. In fact, I didn't think it was even going to be a book. I just started with chapter one as a whim. And then it kind of built from there, and then I realized I have to decide is everything going to be true? Am I going to make things up? And so everything's true as I remember it during those years in the early mid 60s. Um, and when I got the contract, we went with memoir. So it's everything true as I remember it. The first piece I want to read is uh, set in Christmas time, 1966 67. It's Christmas Eve and Christmas. Uh, Christmas Eve evening and Christmas itself. And a little background here. It's about my father. Uh, It's about Catholicism. It's about priests. Uh, It's winter time. And my father was really an inscrutable character to me when I was growing up. He uh, never talked to me, never talked to anyone, paced around a lot. I never quite figured him out until years later. Uh, When he was 12 years old, his mother died, and he was sent away to boarding school. There was eight children in the family. His father was a doctor who drove a buggy around with a horse named Rosie all over the South Suburbs. And his mother died, and his father immediately married his wife's sister. That's what you did back then if you had eight kids. And the wife's sister became the stepmom, and she hated all the kids, and she did everything she could to keep them away from the father. So my father grew up not being able to speak to his father, which means... When he had us, he didn't speak to us. Uh, He also, I think, suffered from clinical depression, which we didn't understand back then. And then alcoholism comes into it. Uh, In college, he graduated in 1931, and he was a fantastic actor. He played Macbeth and Hamlet and Lear, had offers all over Broadway. And his father said, you can't do that, it's immoral. Either medicine or law, take your pick. And so he picked law because I don't think he could imagine examining other people's bodies and he was unhappy in the law, really unhappy. So when opportunities came along in the mid-60s to kind of make a quick buck, he used to say, he went for them. And there was a con man involved named Lou. And the first deal was around 65, 64. And there was this new phenomenon called indoor shopping malls. So at this point, they're nowhere in the country. The department stores are downtown. And, you know, urban decay, racial strife, things are happening. So The cities are dying, and the stores are moving to the suburbs. Philadelphia had a shopping mall, and Chicago did. And so somebody wanted to build one in the south suburbs of Pittsburgh. And this contractor went to my father and said, Look, I got a piece of land It's perfect. It's called the Mayfair property. You borrow the money. We'll build the mall there. So my father mortgaged the house, took out another big loan, all this money. At the last second, the deal didn't go through. They built the mall somewhere else. Actually, right across from my Catholic grade school. It became South Hills Village Mall. So my father lost all this money. About a year later, Lou comes back a second time and says, I got another deal. This one's Christmas trees. We can buy all these Christmas trees up in Northern Pennsylvania for $2 a piece. Bring them to the suburbs, sell them for $15. We'll make a killing. So my father borrows on the borrowings again, goes way into debt. They buy thousands and thousands of trees. And of course, they didn't have the logistics figured out. They didn't have sellers. It was a disaster. So Christmas came, the trees are rotting up North. And this is hard to believe, but it's true. And my father actually rented a piece of the parking lot from the shopping mall that had been built instead of his and sold the trees out of the lot himself that Christmas of 1966. The ironies are unbelievable. So there's this fancy downtown lawyer selling Christmas trees. I'm 12 years old. I'm helping in. My brother from med school comes home. And so the first part of the story is in that Christmas tree lot. It's Christmas Eve of that Christmas, and the following day, Christmas night. Those that are reading along, it's page 120. By Christmas Eve, almost all the trees in our lot were sold, but thousands of others still rotted in the snow-covered hills up north, which kind of ruined Christmas that year, especially when it came time to bring home a tree for ourselves. There wasn't much left to choose from and my father was disappointed because he always liked an eight-foot tree so the star on top would touch the living room ceiling. But nothing that tall looked very good. We had waited too long. My brother got the idea of connecting two trees together with a brace, a good-looking top of one tree with a good-looking bottom of another. No one will ever notice it, he said, not through all the ornaments and branches. It's silly to nail two trees together, my sister said, especially when we own thousands of them. My father didn't care as long as eight foot and a balsam. I didn't want to watch as my brother tried to screw the top of one tree onto another. My father didn't either, and he wandered off behind the wooden trellises we leaned the trees against in the lot. I followed, thinking I might see him, taking a sip from his flask. But when I peeked around the corner, where some scrawny trees were still leaning in the graying light, my father wasn't using his flask at all. He was giving a speech, low voice but dramatic, as if an audience were listening. A freezing wind was blowing in my eyes, so I kept rubbing them while I watched my father speak, as if he were a different person, with language that sounded like he were in a play, maybe from his college days, when my mother said he played Hamlet and Macbeth. She said he was so good that Broadway made him offers after graduating, but my father's father, who had worked at a country doc- as a country doctor, riding his buggy through the woods of South Pittsburgh to take care of people who hardly had any money, told my father he couldn't go into acting because of the immoral lifestyle, which I didn't quite understand. He told my father to choose either medicine or the law, and my father chose law because my mother said he couldn't imagine examining other people's bodies. Behind the trellises in the freezing dusk light, he rose on his toes with hand gesturing and head tilting under his brown businessman's hat. His speech continued at just over a whisper, and his body moved from inside his heavy wool coat in a way I had never seen before, as if he were a younger man. He said something about a character named Gloucester, who wanted to kiss the king's hand, but the king had to wipe it off first because it smelled of mortality, not of pine trees. After all, I felt guilty watching him and turned back toward the tent, but I didn't want to watch my brother either with his tree saw and hammer. So I just sat on a stump until my father walked by looking as if nothing had happened behind the trellises, and maybe it hadn't, except it was too real for me to have imagined. How many times, I wondered, had he secretly done this before? Maybe he did it in front of Taddy Keegan, or maybe behind the piles of folders in his office where no one could see. He walked past my brother, who was wrestling with a tree between his legs, and then stopped to pull his cigarettes from his right coat pocket, the L&M side. He walked over and stood near him, I'm sorry, I walked over and stood near him, wishing I could see his face, but it was hard, with his collar up and black glasses and hat underneath the closing darkness. That night, my brother got our tree up in the living room, but no one felt very good about it, because it really was two trees, even though it was hard to tell, The whole idea was too much for my mother, who refused to even look at it. When Aunt Julie and Uncle Stanley came to visit Christmas Day, Uncle Stanley stood with his Bloody Mary in hand and talked, as he always did, about the things he owned and which brands were best, like his Ford Thunderbird being better than my father's Buick that was no damn good. And my father not arguing back, but tilting his watery eyes in a way that showed contempt, until Uncle Stanley turned away. And that's when he looked at our tree. I glanced over to see the nervousness in my mother's face. What did you do here? Put two trees together? He asked, laughing, his cigarette ash falling from his mouth onto the carpet. As soon as they left, my mother announced that next year she was going to buy one of those new artificial Christmas trees, and my father said he wouldn't let her bring a plastic tree into our house. Father Sanders came to dinner that night, even though no one really wanted him there on Christmas but my father. It's always better to be kind, my mother said. Father Sanders was a Jesuit. And for my father, that's all that mattered, because in his mind, a Jesuit was the best kind of holy man. They are la creme de la creme, he liked to say. When I asked him what he meant by that, he said, they are the best educated class of men in the world. But Father Sanders didn't look like creme de la creme. He didn't even look like any Jesuits we had known, who all had gray hair and red faces and shaky thin hands that looked holy. And who told stories of faraway places and amazing people they had met. Father Sanders had thin, brown, uncombed hair that my sister said was always greasy and skin that looked almost yellow, especially his face, which was marked with little holes in his cheeks. And none of us wanted to sit next to him at dinner because all he did was smile as if something funny was going on we didn't know anything about. I had no idea how my father knew Father Sanders, especially since he lived on the other side of Pittsburgh and had no car. So when he came to dinner, we'd have to pick him up in the late afternoon and drive him all the way back at night. My older brother referred to Father Sanders as the leech, but never in front of my father. And it upset my mother, who didn't like hearing an unkind word about any priest. My brother and sister would argue about who was going to have to drive Father Sanders back home. My mother always worried Father Sanders might overhear. I never trusted anything Father Sanders said, especially when he asked to excuse himself for 20 minutes before Christmas dinner to say his office, a series of priestly daily prayers. With his drink in one hand and his little black book in the other, he headed upstairs and chose my sister's bedroom for the privacy. A few minutes later, I pretended to be looking for my sister and opened the bedroom door as if I didn't know he was in there. Next to the window, where my sister had her collection of Virgin Mary statues on a little table, Father Sanders lay on my sister's bed with his eyes closed and his drink balanced on his belly. Through the shadows, he turned to look at me for a moment with his short-lipped smile and then turned back and closed his eyes again, his little black book still in his hand. At dinner, my mother jumped up to refill his plate with more roast beef and potatoes and Lassure canned peas. And Father Sanders, sweating a little from his forehead, would pause every few seconds to push his glasses back up on his nose before bending over to scoop up more food. And I kept thinking how unfair it was, because my mother told the rest of us, except for my father, to FHB, family holdback, in case there wasn't enough food. And always to leave one bite on the plate so it didn't look like we were starving, especially when we ate at other people's houses. But Jesuits, they never get enough to eat, she said. And they're always cold, which is why she gave them sweaters at Christmas, the black kind that button up the front. Jesuits will never buy a sweater for themselves, she said. But I didn't believe that. I wanted to sneak into Father Sanders' rectory sometime and look into his drawers. I bet he had dozens of sweaters stashed away. His problem was probably remembering which sweater was my, from my mother so he could wear it when he came to dinner. One time he's bound to mess up, I thought, and my mother will notice. After dinner was over, my mother took the wine bottle away so Father Sanders wouldn't get sleepy. Then he might want to stay overnight. She'd have to drive him back in the morning. She started from the table by asking for his blessing, and that's how we knew Father Sanders' Christmas visit was coming to an end. And she whispered in my ear, please ride along to keep your sister company when she drives Father Sanders home. I couldn't say no, even though I didn't think my sister should have to go out in the dark on Christmas night Drive across the city on streets, my mother said, were icy and poorly lit. But Father Sanders never seemed to think about that. She whispered again, her breath warm on my cheek and without smell, asking me not to complain. Because if Father overheard, he would want to drive Father Sanders himself. And he could fall asleep behind the wheel, like when he ran into the telephone pole on Cochrane Boulevard, or when he slammed into the front of the garage one night as he arrived home. She gave me the eyeball, which meant I had to kneel down with everyone else to receive Father Sanders' blessing, even though I didn't think his blessing would do any good, because God probably wouldn't pay attention to him, and because I didn't want him to touch my head with his hands or smile down at me with his yellow tilted teeth, and I didn't want to kneel beneath him, beneath his stained sweater and thin hair that he kept pushing across his forehead with square fingers, or glance upward at his eyes that looked away as if you, I'm sorry, as if you looked away if you were steady enough to stare through him. And I couldn't imagine ever confessing to Father Sanders or asking him to pray for special things, like when my father used to ask to pray for the Mayfair. When the blessing was over, my father stood up slowly, his knees creaking, and announced, I'll take Father Sanders home. So my mother whispered one final time, without any breath at all, asking me to ride along to keep my father awake on the drive back, which is hard to do with a man who never talked to you, even if he kept asking questions like, what are you going to do with the thousands of trees on the ground up north? Or do you think any fool can really see that Christmas tree is just two trees nailed together, like Mother said? And I wouldn't be able to see his face in the darkened car to know if he was actually listening, unless the approaching headlights streaked across for a second. And even then, with his head drooping like it always did, and his businessman's hat and thick black glasses, you couldn't see anything. Maybe I didn't want to see his face, because on that Christmas night, my father probably had the saddest face of all. We made it safely back home in the old, black Oldsmobile after taking Father Sanders across the city, and my father never spoke a word to me. In the driveway, he turned off the engine and the headlights, and then for some reason, his body just seemed to stop, as if the winding key inside him had run down. After a few moments, with him not moving in the cold stillness of our steep driveway, I felt afraid. Not of my father, but of something beyond him that seemed to make him powerless in a way I'd never seen before. Both of his gloved hands remained on the steering wheel, like he was planning on driving the car without the engine on, maybe to a place you don't need an engine to get to. And I was afraid to open my car door, because he might not open his. After a minute, he moved his hands and rested them on his thighs. I thought that was a good sign, until I realized he was just settling into a more comfortable position. Again, I thought of opening my door to see what he would do, but if he didn't move, I couldn't leave him in the car alone. And if I asked, "'Dad, aren't you coming?' He probably wouldn't answer, maybe just mumble, in a minute, son, so no good would come of it. More minutes passed, till I wondered if he had forgotten I was even there, or if maybe he was nodding off to sleep. But he always snored when he slept, and the car engine was quiet, except for the occasional ticking coming from the engine. My father was hunched over more than normal, sort of like he was trying to draw back inside himself. What if he just wants to be alone for a while in the freezing car, I thought. And how could this be the same man who stood on his toes the night before reciting Shakespeare on Christmas Eve behind a row of unsold trees in the new mall parking lot? I surveyed the other houses on our street to see if anyone might be looking out wondering why my father was still inside the car. But the houses were all dark, except for ours, which had a single lamp on in the living room that my mother kept lit until the last person went to bed. The porch light was off, probably to save electricity. People who leave the lights on have more money than brains, she said. Inside the stiffening darkness, I thought I heard my father sigh and say, I only wanted to make a buck, son. That's all. But maybe I imagined it, and then I wasn't sure, especially since my father could talk without saying words. I guess this is it, I thought. We're just going to sit here in the Oldsmobile cold until he can't stand it anymore, except that the cold won't bother him as much. And then it didn't matter, because my father said, without turning his head, let's go in, son, just like that. It was over. Well, I haven't read that section before. I don't know if I will again. (laughs) The book just came out and that's an intense section for me. So maybe just stick to things lighter. How many have been to Pittsburgh? Who's been there? I'm from there. You are?
0: I am. I was born in 66.
1: We are bonded, baby.
0: (laughs) I know. I'm so excited. And I know all the references. You said Cochrane Boulevard. I know those references. Wow. How
1: serendipitous. So this is, uh, Pittsburgh, three rivers are there. The Monongahela, the Allegheny join and become the the Ohio River. And right there is where the city sits and at the point... Is this fountain and the city's gorgeous the way it's laid out. But back then, it was not really like that. I mean, was, the city was still there, but the meal, steel mills were going, the rivers were filthy. And um, this involves going down to the rivers. This is a chapter the Gettysburg Review recently published. It's called The Rivers in the Book, for those who want to look along. And um, it involves a character named Taddy Keegan, who figures large in the book. Early in the chapters, early chapters of the book, the uh, Creeley brothers are these bullies who really torture me and kind of take me into their world of darkness and uh, chapter 3 I meet Taddy Keegan and he's this Huck Finn character he's charismatic, free courageous, probably something wrong with him, he never really looked at you he kind of always looked past you, there was no emotional connection but he saved me from the Creeleys, not because like in a cliched movie he stood up and beat them up but because I realized to him the Creeleys didn't exist and so it was like Blake says, you know, the mind forged manacles they're our own. We put them on our, our minds. And once I was a Taddy Keegan, I just realized the Yeckleys don't count. Ooh, I said their real name. <laughs> I can't do that back east. Their real name is Yeckley. Do you believe that? Y-E-C-K-L-E-Y. It's changed to Creeleys in the book. As you can see, I'm still dealing with this. <laughs> Consider this therapy tonight. <laughs> I sweated reading about my father. Um, so Taddy Keegan, there's nine kids in his family... They're a real Irish family, and my mother used to say 10 if you count the father. And they're all like out of Leave it to Beaver, and uh, he's called the crazy Irish kid. His younger brother, Timmy's just as crazy, his older brother, Taddy. Um, But I used to go up to their house, and it was a whole new world. So this story opens up. It's summer, July of uh, 1968, so I'm 14. And I go to the Keegan's house, and there's a raft involved, and it involves going down to the rivers. And I think that's, oh, I missed the most important thing. They were building a bridge from downtown Pittsburgh over to the north side. And the bridge got started in 62, and then funding fell apart, and there was no property rights on the other side. So it just stayed two-thirds built, from 63, 64, 65, 66, 67, five or six years, and became known as the bridge to nowhere. (laughs) Finally, the funding came through. They built it. And I went to the other side, and that's where they built Three River Stadium. That's where the Steelers played all those years, that they were victorious. Now that's gone, and Heinz Field is there. And now the bridge is actually called the Roberto Clemente Bridge. So in the setting of this chapter, though, it's only two-thirds built. It's the bridge to nowhere. It only goes halfway, about halfway across the river. I will tell you in one second, ma'am. 155. The Rivers. I didn't hear about it until everyone was ready to head downtown. Craig McCann stopped by in a hurry, his body wiggling and his hands yapping at his thick glasses as he stood on our front steps. He talked sideways at me. You don't want to miss this, he said excitedly. The Keegans are taking their two-man raft down to the rivers. Taddy says he's going to jump off the bridge to nowhere. Then Craig McCann ran up the street as if he were heading to an emergency and cut through the old man Hoover's yard and disappeared. A few minutes later, I was cutting through my own backyard. The June day was hot and cloudless, and the white, humid sky seemed to press upon me as I made my way to Taddy Keegan's house. His older brother's cab was parked in front, a hack, Paddy Keegan told it, and Taddy and his younger brother, Timmy, were stuffing a deflated yellow raft and two plastic oars into the trunk. Paddy, who was in his 20s and one of the curly-haired Keegans, yelled in a controlled way that Taddy and Timmy seemed used to, Hurry up, you little shits! And remember, I'm just going to drop you off downtown. You have to find your own way home. We can take the trolley, Timmy said defiantly. I have the 35 cents. No one said anything to me. And I wasn't sure if it was because they didn't want me there or because they were too focused on getting down to the rivers. Taddy sat up front, and without even asking, I sat down in the back seat next to Timmy. A second later, Paddy made the car explode away from the curb, and suddenly our heads jerked back. Hey, there's McCann, I said. We could see him running down the cobbled bricks of Nakoma and waving at Patty to stop, which he did, slamming on the brakes so hard that the back tires screeched and slapped up against the curb. Since Patty didn't own the cab, he didn't seem to care what happened to it. Hurry up, McCann, Patty yelled through Taddy's open window. McCann climbed nervously in the back seat, right on top of Timmy's legs because Timmy wouldn't move over. Then they started pushing at each other, and the car took off with the door still open and McCann not all the way in. Patty drove downtown in a way that only a A cab driver would know, climbing up the steep back streets of Beachview, the car feeling hotter and hotter, even with the windows open, then bumping across the bricks and the trolley tracks that swerved the cab like an amusement park ride. All the while, I kept thinking how much easier it would be to just take Liberty Avenue straight downtown. How are you going to blow this up, Patty yelled in a bothered voice, because I'm just going to drop you off on the south side. That's it. How about stopping at a gas station, Taddy asked. Surprisingly, Patty did at the bottom of Mount Washington, but the blown-up raft didn't fit back inside the car, so Paddy said they'd have to hold it up on the roof by gripping the edges, which Taddy did from one side of the car and Timmy did from the other. We're not going through the Liberty Tunnel, Paddy said, because it's probably illegal with a raft on the roof, so we'll take the McGardell Roadway and go over Mount Washington. I'll drive slow so you guys can hold on. We only got a little ways up the hill before Timmy's fingers couldn't hold the rubber edge any longer and the raft blew off the roof and bounced back down the road into the cars behind us. Paddy pulled over, but before he got out, he turned around and smacked Timmy's forehead several times with the palm of his hand, calling him a useless idiot. Ah, me Irish matey, Timmy said, as if he didn't really mind his older brother slapping his face. Do you have to be so cruel? Come on, Paddy, Taddy said. Quit giving Timmy the business. Let's go get the raft. So the two of them ran off behind the car and Timmy continued talking the fake Irish with his eyes closed as if we were in a trance. After putting the raft back on the roof, Taddy offered to drive so Patty could try holding on. You assholes ain't insured to drive my hack, Patty said, which surprised me because he didn't say anything about we assholes being only 14. So Patty held the raft with one hand and steered with the other. "'and Taddy held on to the other side, "'and Timmy kept mumbling Irish "'as the cab inched its way up Mount Washington "'down the steep other side, "'all of Pittsburgh suddenly coming into view "'and the steel mills steaming in the distance, "'cars tooting at us from behind "'until we finally stopped "'next to the old Pittsburgh Rail Station "'alongside the Monongahela River. "'The station had been closed for years. "'The glass roof still blackened from World War II "'when they painted it that way, my father said, "'so the German planes wouldn't see it "'when they came to bomb Pittsburgh.' Because Pittsburgh was the industrial capital of the country, my father said, it turned out more tons of steel than any city in the world. McCann and I sat on the concrete wall, stared across the river at all the business people at Point Park, enjoying their lunch outside. This is the kind of thing you do, I thought, when you're older and out of school. Just sit around on a hot day and watch the river, stare at the city and everything else that exists beyond. You guys are on your own now, Patty said, looking back as he got inside his cab. Through the open window, he added, and be careful, you little shits. Don't get into any trouble. The car spit gravel as it took off, and in that second, I realized Patty had no idea what his brother, Taddy, was planning to do. He probably thought Taddy and Timmy were just going to float around in the rivers, enjoy their raft, and McCann and I would just loaf around and watch them. When Taddy and Timmy finally got into the raft, they started arguing about who was in front and who was in back until it seemed they might turn the raft over into the filthy Monongahela, and that would be the end of it. But they quieted, and Taddy let Timmy's end be the front. Paddling together, they headed across the wide brown river toward the point. What are we going to do now, McCann said. I don't know. We should go to the other side. We can watch them better. How are we going to get there? Across the Fort Pitt Bridge. But there's no walking allowed on Fort Pitt Bridge. That's why we have to run real fast, McCann said. So we streaked across the bridge, where there wasn't even a sidewalk, but only a concrete curb between the cars, racing by the railing, smelling the thick river inside the waves of heat. I never looked up or down, but only at McCann's sneakers flashing back at me in quick rhythm. When we reached the end, we ran towards the Hilton Hotel through the pedestrian tunnel underneath the Fort Pitt monument and finally up the other side onto the lawn at Point Park. Sweating and thirsty, we didn't stop till we reached the edge of the Allegheny River near the bridge to nowhere. Taddy and Timmy were still out in the middle of the water where the three rivers merged together They didn't seem to be getting anywhere with their paddling. They'd stop for a bit as if they were giving up, then they'd paddle again without making progress. Occasionally, motorboats zoomed by as if they didn't see Taddy and Timmy, but I could see them. After a while, they decided they couldn't make it to the bridge against the current and turned horizontal and rowed to shore right near where McCann and I were standing. At least you made it into the Allegheny River, I said as Taddy climbed out. He didn't even look at me or say a word, but just started walking robot-like along the concrete river wall toward the bridge to nowhere. Timmy didn't say anything either, which was unusual. I couldn't tell if he was mad at his brother or just mad at the river. He started dragging the raft along the shore in a drudging way, trying to follow close behind Taddy. Eventually, Timmy re-entered the water, floated out toward the middle, where the bridge to nowhere ended in midair. While I was watching them, I lost track of Taddy Keegan. I couldn't spot him anywhere. Maybe he's already climbing the bridge, I thought. And that's when I remembered taking... Talking, him, I'm sorry, and that's when I remembered him talking one time about driving off the end of the bridge to nowhere, just like some crazy college kid did a few years before, in an old Chrysler station wagon, right through the barriers at full speed, miraculously landing unhurt on the far shore of the Allegheny River. He did it on a dare, Taddy said. That's how things get done. So Taddy thought he could do it, if only someone would let him drive his car. The whole incident upset my father. It's an embarrassment, he said to Uncle Stanley, for a city with more bridges than any city in the country to have one ending in midair. After the main span was completed, there was problems with property owners on the other side, my father said, which was too bad because the bridge was supposed to lead to a new football stadium so the Steelers wouldn't have to play in lousy old pit field anymore, which was up past the hill district where my father hated to go. But the new stadium hadn't been built either. Taddy Keegan had climbed the bridge after all. I could see him moving steady along the upper level of the roadway, but the noontime crowds hadn't noticed him yet. There were so many other things for them to look at. Who was going to see a boy balanced against the handrail with his feet near the green barrels arranged at the end of the bridge to nowhere? Fifty yards below, Timmy floated almost perfectly still in his small yellow raft. I looked from a can, but he had run up toward the bridge, I decided to to stay, though, because Timmy was yelling at his brother. People on the point heard him, his voice taking them right out of their unslanted sunlight. Brother, brother, Timmy yelled. Don't jump, don't jump, brother. His words sounded familiar because I had heard him talking like that before, once when I came across him and Taddy down at the creek, just as it was getting dark. I heard them before I could see them, because the dust light was mixing it up in the evening mist So I followed the sound of their voices across the damp grass until I was right next to the creek. They were standing inside the opening of the sewer tunnel that that passed underneath the Iroquois dead end. "'Brother, brother,' Timmy said. "'How could you make a lad do such a thing?' "'Then pay me what you owe me,' Taddy said. "'I don't got it, brother, but I'm good for it. "'I'm good for it, brother.' "'Then you have to blow me,' Taddy said. They both saw me standing there at the same moment but didn't seem to care." And continued on as if they were performing in a play and I was only the audience. And I wasn't really there either. Their words sounded serious, but their acting was kind of funny. Maybe because I could hardly see them through the dimming gray light. But brother Timmy said, "How do I know you won't piss in me mouth?" "Oh brother, brother, you know I'm good for the money." I'd heard about blowing because everyone used the word. I just wasn't sure how it happened, but I knew it was wrong, especially between brothers. "'Okay, I'll do it, but without, holding you, bro- without touching you, brother,' Timmy said. The sound of the creek water was louder than usual. Then a truck passed by up in Gilkison Road and drowned out even the creek water. When Taddy unzipped his pants, I thought about leaving, but I wanted to know what they did. I looked up toward Gilkison Road and thought how it was a good thing little Kenny wasn't there. When I looked back, Timmy was bending over inside the tunnel darkness, getting ready to put his mouth around it without touching, because then it, would, it wouldn't be a sin.' I heard his voice blow twice, and he suddenly stood up, stepped outside the tunnel onto the creek. Now, we're even Stevens, brother, right? Even Stevens. Taddy didn't say anything, but turned and headed inside the tunnel. It was too dark to see him, but I could hear his feet splashing through the water, the sound gradually fading, until it was lost inside the rolling creek water. Timmy stepped onto the grass and walked past me as if he didn't see me, as if I were behind a one-way glass, and he headed towards Coppins Hill and his home beyond. When Taddy didn't answer, Timmy repeated, Brother, brother, don't jump. I'm going to jump. I'm going to jump, Taddy finally yelled back. He was standing on top of the bridge railing, leaning against the last suspension pole, his hair sticking straight up from the sweat and his arms raised as if he were signaling triumph. Some of the point people cupped their hands over their eyes to see him better through the noon sunlight. Timmy somehow stood up in the little raft and yelled, The same thing again and Taddy yelled back in the same way and it went on like that for a while until everyone at the point was forced to focus on the two kids and their Irish acting that may have seemed real to some of them. But I knew the difference. I had heard Timmy talk like that other times too in our backyard with my father one time. It was a warm night. My father was listening to the ball game on his little transistor radio that stood in its leather case on the garden wall. Through my third floor window I could hear the hurried baseball announcer's voice but not his words. And then Timmy Keegan's crazy Irish yelling. I went down to the second floor and then halfway down to the first floor, stopping on the landing. Through the window, I could see Timmy Keegan standing on the flagstones in the lower backyard. Instead of pacing around smoking cigarettes and listening to the game, my father was answering back in the same crazy Irish, like he knew it somehow. I could see them fairly well through the screen, even though it was already dark inside. It was strange because Timmy never visited my house. Maybe he was just cutting through our yard and ran into my father. The exchange ended quickly when my mother opened the back door and told them to quiet down. They were scaring the neighbors, even though she really didn't like the crabby old Macbeths who lived next door. Timmy ran through the poplar trees in our upper backyard. My father came inside, where my mother sat at the gray kitchen table paying the bills. Mother, stop being at me, he said loudly. She jumped up to close the window, even though it was a warm night, because she hated yelling, didn't want the neighbors to hear. My father headed into the dining room to pace there instead in the almost darkness because no one had put the lamp on yet. Missing the ball game, still playing on the transistor radio outside. He smoked in circles around the dark mahogany table that had been polished by Lorraine until it shined. So you could see, even in the dim light, my father's image inside the dark wood and then back out of it. Circling around, rubbing his fingers nervously against his palms, his slick back hair shiny in the window light and the gray cigarette smoke rising silvery circling with emotion all its own in the twilight room before fading into the dark corners. My father's head down the whole time, except when he looked away for a second as he made the turn to pace back the other way. Still floating under the bridge to nowhere, Timmy Keegan yelled again, brother, brother, don't jump. But Taddy Keegan was already gone. And I was almost too late to see because of the last dark shape of him against the brightness his arms still above his head through the downfall sunlight into the Allegheny River that looked black and distant under the noon sky. He stayed underwater a long time, so long that most of the people at the point began to believe he wasn't coming up again. And I started counting the seconds to see how long he could last. I thought of yelling out to Timmy who was peering over in his raft in the dark water. He would give the raft a little spin and then look some more. And I wonder why he didn't just jump in and try and save his brother unless maybe this was part of their act too. I considered swimming out myself into the steel mill polluted water because Taddy had saved me from drowning in the creek when we rode truck tires after a storm. He pulled me by my hair until I was free of the current. So I started running up river, kicking my shoes off along the way so I was ready to jump in and trying to remember my junior safety lessons so I'd be able to save Taddy Keegan if I found him. And that's when he shot up out of the water without his shirt on, like a white-bodied fish right next to the raft all the people at the point clapped as Taddy climbed in as if it were the end of a stage show and he and Timmy started screaming brother, brother they hugged each other and kissed on both cheeks and hugged again and the point people clapped again typical Keegan crap I thought (laughs) and it went on until the point people started losing interest because in their minds the boys were safe now there was nothing else to worry about meanwhile the boys were already floating away on the currents of the Allegheny River heading toward the Ohio River I had no idea what to do. The sun seemed to get hotter every second, and there weren't any ripples of wind on the river, but the currents were still there, taking Taddy Keegan away no matter what, he and Timmy drifting without using the oars. I watched them as they made a little turn and entered the Ohio River, and then they disappeared behind some buildings. They'll keep drifting west, I thought, until they come to Neville Island, where they'll get out and try and take the bus home, But they'll have to leave the raft behind, and Taddy won't want to do that. So they'll just keep on drifting right past Neville Island. I wanted to yell, Taddy, Taddy! But he didn't know why, and it was too late for that. Most of the business people were heading back to work. The ones left behind seemed to have already forgotten about the boy who jumped off the bridge to nowhere. I stayed longer, sitting on the river wall, trying to fool myself into not worrying about how I was going to get home. Craig McCann had already left for his father's office downtown. But I didn't want to go to my father's office... in the Frick building... see him pacing around the piles of papers and folders... stopping for a moment to say... Hi son... without any surprise in his voice or face... and then continuing his pacing... and I couldn't call my mother... because she didn't know where I was... so I'd have to take the trolley home alone... even though I'd never done that before... and I only had a quarter... I found myself walking across Point Park... as if I wasn't in charge of my own body... back through the pedestrian tunnel... Hilton Plaza, to a trolley stop on Liberty Avenue. forty-two thirty-eight Mount Lebanon Beachview, I remembered. That was the streetcar I needed to take. And I kept thinking it was too bad Taddy Keegan wasn't there because he would find an Irish way to get us on the red trolley car and we'd look out the window together at all the things that existed beyond. Some sparrows were making a racket underneath the roof of the trolley stop, bothering me so much I looked around for a stone to throw at them. And that's how I found an old nickel on the pavement by the curb I only need another nickel now, I thought. The birds kept up their noise, flying in and out of the nest, up on the rafters, like it was an exciting thing to do. I thought about throwing the nickel at them, but instead walked around with my head down, looking for another nickel. Maybe I should just sneak onto the trolley, I thought, because that's what Taddy Keegan would do, but if I can just find a nickel. I tried using my eyes without dropping my head, so no one would know what I was doing, and I kept thinking the trolley could be here any minute but maybe the nickel won't matter that much to the conductor man, I thought, and he will let me take the 42-38 for just 30 cents, and then I will make it home. Thank you. You guys have been terrific. And that was about 35, 40 minutes. Is that good? So... Thank you very much. Anybody have any questions or anything else? Comments? Where, where do you think your mother got her pension for the aphorisms and uh, did that continue? Gosh, that's a really good question. We just thought they were kind of born sui generis with her. I don't know. I mean, her mother was supposedly a fantastic woman, but she was dead before I had any memory of her. So I'm thinking probably her mother, but we always thought it all would with my mother, and there was a million of them. And the funny thing is, we all laughed at them and made fun of them. And now I have a 14-year-old daughter, and I find myself using all those expressions. <laughs> you know, people say, when somebody dies and is close to you, they always say, don't worry, she'll always be with you. And you always think, oh, that, you know, that, that's just crap. But they are, not in like a ghost sense, but with everything they've ever told you is still alive. And that's, that's real, you know. Mr. Bloom, thank you. When
0: did you leave Pittsburgh
1: and where did you go to school? I left uh, at 18 and I went with my high school teacher who was avoiding the draft by teaching at our high school. He looked just like John Lennon. And he drove me to Cape Cod and I took a boat over on my, by myself to Martha's Vineyard and got a job there in 1972. And I never went back home again. I went to Holy Cross College that fall and then I would work in Martha's Vineyard in the summer as a tour bus driver. Um, went to graduate school 77 to 82 in between lived in Paris for a year my PhD in 82 what's that? I was graduate school? Uh, Boston College and then I finished in 82 83 I got a job at Boston University taught there tenure track for five and a half years and got fired in the middle of my tenure review of my politics which is another story and then uh, <laughs> and then I taught at MIT as a visiting professor and then I came to Cal Poly in 89 and I've been there ever since yeah well, it, if you know Howard Zinn, do you guys know Howard Zinn? His blurb is on my book. He and I were very, very close, uh, really like father-son. And um, I met him at Boston University in the early 1980s. It was 83, 84. I got elected to the Senate, and I got elected to be in charge of the Student Life Task Force. Um, there's a couple of things. I'll give you one really, I think, anecdote that I think is just unforgettable. Um, There was a thing called divestiture going on. I don't know if anybody remembers that. But a lot of corporations, schools had money invested in South Africa. And the whole idea was if you divest, South Africa will crumble and apartheid will end. So the divestiture movement came to Boston University, which had tons of money invested in South Africa. And we were trying to pressure the president to get the money out of there. And he wouldn't. So the students came to me and they said... uh, what can we do? And I said, well, let's go to Howard. He'll have an answer. I would met Howard earlier over something else, and we would become pretty close, and we were fighting the tyrannical president, John Silber, that was there, and Michael knows this because he went to BU a little, little bit before that. Um, Silber tried to get something passed so he could uh, fire professors if they were doing something in their private life they didn't like. He tried to close down the nursing college because women were uneducable. I mean, he was just amazing. So uh, the students came to me. I went to Howard, and they, we said... Let's build a shanty right there in the UU Plaza. And you can live in it over the weekend, just like the poor blacks are living in in South Africa. And the students loved it. So they got a permit to build a shanty on Friday and take it down on Sunday for two days. And they brought in the corrugated metal and the cardboard. There's about 20 or 30 of them. And they lived there through the weekend. They, you know, peed and and went to the bathroom right there. It was the real deal. Uh, It was spectacular. Sunday came. What happened? They didn't want to take it down. No, this was something, and more kids came, and another shanty went up, and another shanty went up, and the Boston Globe started covering it, and the newspapers started covering it, and it was a huge happening, and John sober, this Banana Republic tyrannical president with one arm who hated the world and hated women, hated minorities, uh, he said, I'm bringing the bulldozers in, and I said, we've got to do something before that happens, so I asked Howard if he would speak. And uh, so Howard spoke. We had a little forum that day, and I introduced him, and Howard got up, and by then I'd been pretty good friends with him for a couple years. And I just want to tell you what he said, because his words were so cool. Uh, He stood up there and he said, this is not about politics. Silver is trying to make it look like politics, but it's not. It's about education. If people can see, and BU is a very wealthy school with very wealthy students, if people can see how the blacks in South Africa are living... They will get it, and divestiture will happen. Education. I'll never forget he said that. president had photographers taking pictures of all the professors that were there supporting it, and he tried to fire all of them. I was one of them. And the next day, the bulldozers came in. But, you know, divestiture happened, and apartheid ended two years later. So it had a huge effect on that. So you asked about why I got fired. That was one of the reasons. I, I got fired in 88, and Howard retired in 88. And we've been friends ever since. And he read the book early on before he died in 2010, and that's where I got the blurb. Yeah. I Wall Street this was to people was a very
0: sensible thing and
1: Yeah. But you're actually right. It started to work not because of moral reasons, but because they realized the companies were losing money, so it came down to money. But you know. It's like Lincoln in the Civil War. He did it for the wrong reason at first, and then he realized the right reason later on, you know? And, you know, I just, I know there are going to be interesting questions involved, but could you some the influence of other writers? Do you guys No, that's good. I, I've been publishing fiction and essays, you know, in the 80s and early 90s, but my fiction was always about made-up things. My essays tended to be personal, and I wrote the first chapter, the one about the rat, called Rat Stick at Twilight, just kind of on a whim, and it's seven pages long. I'm seven years old in that scene. And uh, that was 1995. So the book's 20 years old in that sense. And I didn't really know what was going to happen to it at that point. Um, and I wrote a couple more chapters. And then I got into another book called Buna- Paranoia and Contentment. I didn't come back to this book until 2004, right after my mother died. And when I went back to the book with my mother died, my father had died 40 years earlier, which is another story. But when I went back to the book with both parents dead... I was way more liberated to write about, you know, the, the darkness of the past that, you know, I think of Eugene O'Neill saying that, that I could have never done, you know, when they were around. I forgot what your question was. What was your question? No, what was your question? No, what was your question, no, was your question though? That was so much better than any question. Do you remember what our question was?
0: It was about writers
1: that you were... Oh, yes, I'm sorry. So what happened is I started... I'm going to get this out. I started the book before Angela's Ashes was published. That's what I want everybody to know. I started in 95, 96. But when that book came out in 98, I think, um, that gave me great confidence to go back and finish the book and stay with the voice of the boy. That's what I meant to say. Um, you can write a memoir looking back, but if you can go back and write it from then, it has way more power and presenticity. And I was kind of wondering, can I pull this off? Because if you use you know, the language of a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old, it can't be sophisticated language. So how do you make the writing fresh and powerful? And Angela's ashes gave me the confidence to say, hey, I think I can do this. So I went back to the book and said, I'm going to stick with the voice of the boy all the way through. But it was slow going. I think that's why it took so long to write. I'd write it in little two or three pages at a time, and I'd revise those two or three pages over and over and over, promising myself, I'm not going to go on till those are just right. And that took a long time. Yeah finished it in 2009, yes.
0: Actually, it brings up a very interesting question I have for you. As far as, like, when you're using the voice of the boy early on, you know, obviously kids are really naive, and they, you know, they're not worldly. You have this really great way of capturing yourself then and the limitations that you have. So you, obviously, it's not, when I read this, I'm not seeing uh, a man years later who has, you know, worldly knowledge, but, you know, just... Yeah. A small boy, how do you get yourself into that yeah. spot to write from that naive
1: sense? You were right, Trevor. That is a good question. <laughs> and my answer is going to sound a little bit hokey, but uh, I, I could never write this again. You know, it's—it sounds like science fiction. You can only go back once. I really think that's true. If you think of stories that you've told over and over again, friends and family, holidays, get-togethers, and you tell the same story. Oh yeah, Lisa, that was that story that summer when you were twelve, and that weekend. After a while, all you know is the story. Right? You can't remember anything else about what, except what you've written or what you said. And I started to realize that um, you can go back once. And I realized that about halfway through. So my answer to you is, it was almost like hypnosis. I would go back, you know, that seven-year-old boy, and I would see the creek and the rat. I could see the creelies or the yicklies. um, Or I could see my father that night in the car, that piece I could barely get through probably shouldn't have read. And it comes alive. I don't feel like I wrote anything. I felt like it, I saw the image and it unfolded and then I just kind of copied what was there. I don't ever remember thinking, what am I going to make up now? And I got to make up some, of course, the dialogue, you know, I can't remember the dialogue. But I felt like it just unpacked itself through a kind of hypnosis of going back to that past moment. And I can't do that again. It's like, if any of you want to write memoir, you sell yourself out, you know, you take a piece of yourself and you sell it to your other self. And your other self says, thank you, I'll write that down. But then that self you took it from is really gone, you know. And I've been thinking a lot about this. I've been doing a lot of radio interviews and newspaper interviews. And I really think that's, that's what it is. Like everything else, you pay a price. And the price is the richness of your memories are kind of gone. But I do think you have to go back and just reimagine yourself in that state. And then you will see it does unfold. I think my, my siblings say that's impossible I mean they they can't remember their childhood and they want to know how I can you know um, but I think it depends on sensitivity and your mind and the way your imagination works we all have different things we remember different skills we have and you know I can't operate an iPad you know? <laughs> but I can remember when I was 7. Lisa? Do you think that this kind of cathartic I
0: think experience that you are having has it changed you as a father? in terms of looking
1: at your daughter? Yeah, um, that's a tough one. If you read the acknowledgments, it says uh, to my daughter, Maya, who's always believed in Coffin's Hill and now can finally read it. Uh, But I'm worried about her reading it. You know, there's a couple scenes in there involving girls and sex and I'm only 12 at the time and she's now 14 and I don't want her... Oh, Papa did those when he was 12. (laughs) I can have some guy hyperventilate me and pass out and feel me up. You know... uh, I don't know what to do about that, but I gave her the book for Valentine's Day. And I said, um, I'm giving you this out of respect, and you have to read it and respect me, and if you have any questions, ask me about it. But I think the answer to that question is, when I wrote this, I didn't think it would get published. i published a lot of other things, but I didn't think, who's going to publish a literary memoir about my boyhood in Pittsburgh? And then the whole thing, of course, eventually snowballed, and this fabulous woman, who's my neighbor, but who now has a national reputation, um as a painter, did the oil painting for the cover, which is amazing. And then she painted over for the back. It's the same painting, just painted over and the boys are off the rock. Um, What's her name? Her name is Tracy Harris. And did anybody see the movie? Remind me of your question. Let me get back in a second. Anybody see the movie, The Face of Love? Came out about a year ago with Ed Harris, no relation, and Annette Bening. Annette Bening falls in love. Her husband dies and she meets Ed Harris, who looks just like her husband. And she falls in love with this lookalike guy. And Ed Harris is a painter. And he teaches art classes here at the Los Angeles Art Museum. So she falls in love and they get, you know, involved. Long story short, you get to the end of the movie, you finally see all his paintings that he's been doing. But all his paintings are really by Tracy Harris. No relation. And she came to me and she said, I heard you got a book contract. I've never done a cover. Can I do the oil painting for the cover? And I said, oh my gosh, you know, (laughs) absolutely. And I gave her a shitty little black and white photo of the real Kauffman's Hill and I said, "Can you make it kind of impressionistic? Can you put the boys on the rock? Me and Taddy Keegan." And uh, I don't know what to say. It's just mystical what she did. You know, it's really, really amazing. Did you get to keep the painting? I didn't want to ask her for it. She didn't offer it. Her paintings go for at least ten thousand. So I don't want to buy it, and I don't want her to feel on the spot. So, but nobody else better ever buy it. <laughs> if you want to buy it, she has it in her house. What was your question? I
0: was just asking no, no. If your relationship with Maya has somehow, it's just if you look at maybe. I mean, looking back at one's childhood, I think, I don't know, it's hard to articulate in a way that, I mean, it's interesting, because you're talking about your father. Yeah. Now you're a father. Yeah. You know, and I think your relationship with your father, obviously, was strained. Yeah. You know, I think, thinking about your own childhood somehow, and the way that you went really back. I mean, you're talking about, like, kind of only being able to go back once. Right. You know, you're taking all these memories back doesn't give you a different perspective on looking yeah. at no, that's Maya good.
1: as like a- See, I didn't think it was going to get published, so I put everything in there. Yeah. And then when I got the contract, my wife immediately said, you better call it a novel. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I said, I can't do that. But as I was going through revision, and the revision process is really complicated. It goes on a long time, and I kept thinking, I've got to take this out. I've got to take this out now that it's going to get published. I ended up taking nothing out. And they bring in all these, what do you call it, people who look to see for mistakes. What's that called? Yeah, I mean they did things like there's a memory in chapter 2 where I see President Kennedy in 1962 driving by my neighborhood um, he was going from West Virginia to Pennsylvania to thank those states because they had been key in get him getting elected and my sister said you want to go see him and I let her do her thing and I go by myself I end up at a place where there's nobody else around and remember 1962 there's no freeways yet so when he goes from Wheeling West Virginia to Pittsburgh it's on four lane it's like that road out there for three hours and, uh, you know, I'm there by myself for some reason. There's nobody around. And he comes by, and just like you see, the convertible, the top's down, his wife's next to him. And he does, he's doll. you know, he had neck problems, remember, he, and back problems. So he kind of moves like, like this, you know. And he's waving like there's thousands of people there, and I'm the only one there. And, you know, he said, you better go back and check this, you know. And I looked, and <laughs> October 12th, it really happened. He went by that day. Then he says, but you said Ordale Road. It's Ordale Boulevard so things like that you know and then the very last chapter um, I won't say too much about it but there's a scene where I'm in a car and some music comes on and you would know this the music is by Crimson King Um, I'm sorry King Crimson of the Crimson King The, the song is Court of the Crimson King yes and I imagine in the car hearing Court of the Crimson King by Crimson King King Crimson see And he fact-checked it, and he said, that album came out in February of 1969. You could not have heard it in that car of October 1968. The book ends in October 1968. I'm 14, freshman year of high school, just started high school. And I said, I've gone along with everything you've said. I want to leave that lie in there, because I remember it that way, that Crimson King was playing, you know, according to Crimson King. And he said, okay, I'll give you this one. So that's the only thing that's not true in the book that I knowingly left in. And if you ever play that song, Google it tonight, it's so mesmerizing, that song. Oh my gosh. Yeah, Michael's about ready to sing it. Uh,
0: and it is possible it came out early on the radio just as a promotion. I'm
1: hoping. Because I know I heard it in October of '68. I did. He was a great disc jockey for years, so he's my, he's going to be my go to man on this. What was the question? I forgot the question again. Anybody know what the question was? Was there even a question? How are the chickens? How are the chickens? <laughs> the chickens. Yeah, Michael. Just to point out a parallel between the memories that you're absolutely certain of and um, information in black and white photography.
0: And that is, um, you could take a 60 or 70 year old black and white photograph and, with the right equipment, um, extract
1: color information from it. So the information's there. You just need the yeah. translator or, That's cool. or machinery. Yeah. To pull out the necessary copy. Yeah. So, your memory, has your sibling's memory, the information is there. Yeah. And they just need the trigger or the yeah. catalyst. But you were talking about age group, too. You know, some early publishers were interested early on doing it as a YA book. And I turned them down because I didn't want to go there. I don't think it's a YA book. This is a book about boyhood, you know, for adults. Um, so I think once I made that decision, I don't really think anybody under 16 should read it. But my daughter's going to read it, so we'll see what happens. I'm sure she's already read it. It's been around the house since you know, 2009, and she's not going to just not read it. But. What
0: a gift for her. I mean, how many people get to see their parents in that light? I mean, yeah, you kind of want to be able to go back and see your parents as they were as children? Yeah. I mean, she's going to have a much more human view of you, I think.
1: I think too much, maybe, to though, my past. And I don't know. We'll have to see how it works out. I always worry about something if I can't find something, or I worry about something else. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: I hear your Pittsburgh accent just a little bit. How did
1: you? I was going to do it when I read, but I I didn't want to do it badly, so I didn't do it. You know. But it would have been over there, to the South Side. Right. You going over to Giant You going like Yin's going downtown? I mean, it's real sing-songy and everything is Yin's and yin's are and South Side and real whiny. Like Yin's going over to Skylight Books. you you going to that reading? Gijet? Yeah. A lot of <laughs> yeah. Anap, anap. Yeah. You don't have it either.
0: No, I don't.
1: think, But my mother has it. She
0: said
1: I live in Elway. Ah. Yeah, and you 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 wash your clothes and you rid up the room and red up the room, red what up the house. what what color is that? What color, yeah. what color is that? Yeah. Anybody want to, one more question? Yes, ma'am. I'm just wondering
0: uh, I have a feeling you're much more verbal with your children
1: than your dad was with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, his father he wasn't allowed to talk to. Uh, He never talked to me and he was really depressed and withdrawn so I had a daughter very late in life I'm 60 now so I was 46 when she was born so when you're an older parent I think you're even more inclined you know to put your life into it Um, but I think I consciously was super involved to compensate I think we either repeat our parents mistakes or we do the absolute opposite of what they did to us yeah and now I'm worried I was too involved because she needs to let loose. She's 14, she's in high school, and i got to let go, and it's, it's hard. Yeah.
0: And also I was wondering if the Creeley brothers, uh, did they, I'm wondering what it became. They
1: adults who they... Well, there's the two brothers, and they're both sadists, of course. The younger one, <laughs> who I call Billy Creeley, he died, actually, of an aneurysm. He went away to college. He was obnoxious, and he was playing at Allegheny College. And during practice one day, he didn't feel well, collapsed and died. The other one, who was really perverse, um, I didn't see him for a long, long time, and believe it or not, I saw him at a wedding about 15 or 18 years ago in Denver, and he was so nice to me. Oh, my gosh, he was about engaged and going to get married. And, and then when this book, you know, I got the contract, and you go through all these things, and Bancroft wanted to do the bullying angle, which I didn't want to do because I never wrote, that wasn't my intention, although bullying goes on in the early chapters. So I had to look into it a little bit. I looked into bullying, and I realized, and I'm sure everybody in the audience is hip to this, either one way or the other. um, If you've been bullied, you never forget. But if you're the bullier, they don't remember it. They don't remember it. And I don't know, I don't have an answer for you why. Bring in a psychologist or something. But I could see when I saw him at that wedding, he had no idea of the stuff he did, you know. So... um, that's not my concern about Pittsburgh. Though. I'm doing two readings in Pittsburgh, and my concern is the last chapter has some pretty unkind things about other kids, and uh, my publicist has been kidding about you better get in and out of Pittsburgh really quickly. <laughs> you know. So we'll have to see. Yeah. Well, thank you all. You guys have been great. Thank you very, very much. Fantastic. And bravo.